Thank you, Chris. Uh, well, good morning and welcome. Uh, if you have been coming the last, gosh, I guess this is week six of our series in Daniel, uh, you, I, I wonder if you're wondering along with me, how did he do it? How did he make it? Right, he started off, he's a teenager, he's stolen from his homeland, he's indoctrinated by this foreign empire, abused, everything taken from him, and yet we've seen over and over he refuses to become Babylonian, to sacrifice or compromise his integrity and his faith. If you remember, he interpreted dreams for the evil king, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, way back when. He keeps getting promoted because he's so good at that, at that. and one of his dreams, uh, along with uh, Daniel's decades of faithfulness and witness actually lead to that evil dictator converting, at least in my opinion. Nebuchadnezzar actually comes to faith in God. And then, of course, you're here uh, last week for the bizarre handwriting on the wall story to Belshazzar. Daniel was there too all through his life. And now in this story we're going to talk about today, he's in his 80s most likely. This is our last story actually from Daniel's life. There's a lot left in his book, but they're mostly just visions of his time from his time in exile that God gave him visions. This is his last story. He's an old man. It's the end of his life, serving yet another ruler. And so I've got, you got to ask, isn't he just tired by now? This constant life of without control, waiting 65 years or more in Babylon, still faithful. You want to know how he did it? I want to know how he did it. I had a rude awakening this summer. Um, I turned 31. I turned 31. <laughs> Don't laugh. I'm being honest. I turned 31. And I, here's, okay, here's the thing. The age is irrelevant, okay? You, you've all had this moment where you realize I'm nowhere near where I thought I would be by X. And I had that moment. It's like, I, I thought I would be more mature and <laughs> and confident and smarter and better looking. I, th I thought I'd, right? I thought I'd have it together by now. I thought life would be easier, right? I thought it would be clearer, fewer distractions, fewer questions, fewer things to be afraid of. I could not have been more wrong. And it hit me in a new way this past birthday. Life just gets harder, and I've heard some of you even say to me, Andrew, if it's not getting harder, you're probably not doing it right. Life's getting harder. This faith walk in many ways is getting hard. Finishing well is hard. And it's hard enough for us. How did Daniel do it in Babylon? This is our final story here in chapter 6. For all literary purposes, this is how Daniel finishes. He finishes in a lion's den. It's a familiar story probably to many of you. You saw the flannel graph growing up. You taught the, the flannel graph probably many of you. But here's a, there's a key to this story uh, that we often miss. There's a key to this story about how Daniel finishes. Well, how does he do it? Let's take a look. If you haven't turned to chapter 6 yet of Daniel, do that, <clears throat> do that now. It begins with Darius the Mede. You heard his name in the scripture reading, Darius the Mede. He's the new ruler of Babylon. If it seems like there's been a rotating door of leaders and rulers and dictators in Daniel's lifetime, it's because there has been. This is now the third administration that Daniel has served. 
No more Nebuchadnezzar, he's long gone. No more Belshazzar, he's long gone. No more Babylonian Empire, in fact. In 539 BC, Cyrus the Persian uh, took the capital of Babylon. Apparently, uh, Tom mentioned this last week, but I just find it so interesting. Apparently, he diverted the Euphrates River upstream, miles upstream. It was the city, it was the river that fed into the into Babylon. He diverted it just enough so that his army could sneak in under the massive city wall to take the city, enter the Persian Empire. That's where we're at. This is, and just pause for a This is such an indictment, this whole book of human power. It's an indictment. These kingdoms and kings and empires and politics and policies, they're constantly shifting and in flux. Daniel, as the representative of God's people in exile, remains the same. He's the only constant in this whole book. Empires rise and fall, but Daniel, the man of God, is constant. We don't know much about Darius, actually. He's probably some kind of vice regent to Cyrus, the emperor. Uh, we don't really know, uh, but here's the, here's the big idea. Meet the new boss, same as the old boss. Same thing. Anyway, Daniel is again in this story in chapter 6. He's promoted. Uh, he's the employee of the month, even in Persia. This is a theme in his life. Darius has uh, made some changes to how things run here in Babylon. He's, he's uh, promoted uh, three top officials uh, over Babylonia, this region, with other administrators under them. And uh, Daniel's one of those three. And Daniel's so excellent in his work. Uh, Darius basically, he has an excellent spirit in him. He's so in, he has so much integrity. He protects Darius from loss and corruption, no doubt. He's, he's so trustworthy that Darius wants to promote him over the other two. That's kind of where the story starts. This would make Daniel the second most powerful person in Babylonia under Darius. Daniel, the man who trusted God, he is the most trustworthy man in Darius's government. Now, just think about that for a minute. Daniel's now like in his 80s, like I said, and he has no intention of slowing down. I, I can't believe it. It amazes me. I get tired just thinking about his life. He's still working for the good of Babylon and for his government and for his people. He's still serving. See, when Daniel thinks about finishing his life well, he does not think about retirement, at least in the way we often do. He's not thinking about leisure. He wants to go down with his boots on. And Darius sees it. There's something different about this guy. Now, somehow Darius' plan gets leaked to the other top officials. We don't know how. And they want to take the old man down. They are not happy about this idea, which, again, should sound familiar to you. This has happened to Daniel several times. And if you're in your own workplace drama right now, be encouraged. It's been around a very long time. So they come up with a plan, and these two other guys, they start digging into Daniel's life. They're thinking, this guy has been in public office for so long, three different kings, surely there is dirt on this guy. He's done something we can blackmail him with or just get rid of him with. So you look at verse 4. They could not, they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. They cannot find a thing on him. Not a thing. He's squeaky clean. And you see, when they, when they first start this plan, they assume that Daniel's like them, just a little more successful. Let's find something against him because we know that to get to where we're at, you've got to get your hands dirty. You've got to do some favors for some people. You've got to skim some off the top. That's how we got here. Surely Daniel has too. 
But then they find he is not like them. He is incorruptible. He is above reproach. So now they're looking at someone who's not only an immigrant, who's not only more successful than they are, he has more integrity than they do. So now they are really mad. And they have one move left. If they cannot get him on his vice, they will get him on his virtue. These men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. So they go after that. Daniel's weakness is his devotion to God. That's what they think. So we'll get him there. So they come up with this plan. They go to Darius uh, all together, kind of in a processional, and they say in verse 6, O King Darius, live forever. The high officials of the kingdom and the prefects and the satraps and the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. So they're saying, Darius, for 30 days, everyone will pray to you and you alone. And if they refuse, we'll throw them in the lion's den. Does that sound good to you, Darius? Now, on the one hand, this is a really dumb law. It's not, how do you even enforce a law like this? How do you know when someone's praying and to whom they're praying? It's a little ridiculous on its face, but when you understand a little bit of the politics that Darius is working here begins to make a little more sense. Darius is a new leader in a new kingdom with new people. He's probably a little insecure. He's wondering, how do I remind people who's in charge around here? And, this, and, and these advisors give him an answer. For 30 days, everyone who prays aloud in public at the temple or wherever prays in your name. Not bad. I mean, obviously they won't give their affections to him. They don't believe praying in his name is necessarily going to do anything special, but it's great marketing. And that's all he's looking for. And Darius, he's like, well, all my advisors think this is a good idea. That's how they've pitched it to him. He doesn't know that Daniel wasn't in this brainstorming session. So he agrees. He says, okay. He thinks he's helping his own cause. No harm, no foul, but he's not. Daniel, meanwhile, hears about the law after the fact. Perhaps a friend tells him, assuming that he was in on it in some other conversation, Daniel, you didn't know about that? Daniel says, no, I I didn't know about that idea. And he's not dumb. He He knows what's going on. He knows he's being targeted. This is not the first time someone's come after him for his devotion to God. Now here's, I think, where things get interesting. Because if I were him, I would start a conversation with myself right about now. I would start saying, well, it's only 30 days. It's 30 days. It's not like I have to pray to Darius. It's not what the law says. I, can, I just can't pray to God in public for 30 days. No big deal. There are worse things in the world. I'll pray in private, in my heart, and ride this thing out. This is not worth the lion's den. That's probably, if I'm honest with myself, What I would be thinking in this moment, Daniel does the exact opposite of everything I just said. Verse 10, when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open to Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously, as was his custom. He doesn't talk to himself. He talks to God as he has always done 
three times a day, every day, since he arrived in Babylon over half a century ago. This, by the way, is not commanded anywhere in Scripture. There's no command to pray three times a day. There are psalms that hint that this was a pattern that people uh, chose for certain periods of time, uh, an evening, morning, and afternoon prayer, but it's not a command. And to open the windows toward Jerusalem so that anyone who wanted to see him could, he didn't need to do that either, but he did every day for 65 years. This is the picture we get. And if it were me, this is the first day in all that time I would do something different. This would be the first day I shut the windows and I pray by myself. For Daniel, this day is no different than any other day. He does what he always has done. This is what the text says. Knowing that someone, his enemies are watching him, waiting for him to slip up, he gave thanks to God for his rich blessings. He made petition, no doubt, on behalf of Babylon and Darius, perhaps even for his enemies, for the Jews in exile with him, and he prayed it all in the name of of God. And see, now they, they've got him. They watched him do it. Red-handed, praying, I think, for Darius, but not to him. But they're not dumb either. They know that Daniel is Darius's favorite. So they have to play this just right. So they go back to him, to Darius, and they remind him of his law. They say, now Darius, you said, you said that for 30 days, no one can pray except to you. And if they do, they'll be thrown in the lion's den, right? You said that. Darius says, yes, you were standing right there when I said that. And he even acknowledges, Darius even acknowledges again, and this is the real linchpin of their plan, that in Persian law, even the king cannot change his mind on this. That goes all the way back to the law of Hammurabi on which these societies were based. Okay, we have it. We've seen this. You, it, it's, it just reminds me, you've got to love bureaucratic red tape, right? It's been a, it always gets the job done. The law in this case, in Persian and Median law, it cannot be revoked, even by the king, once it's signed. Now the jealous officials, once they've got Darius to remember this, they pounce. They say they, they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you or the injunction you've signed, but makes his petition three times a day. And now Darius puts two and two together. He says, you set me up. And there's nothing he can do about it. And he realizes he has just signed the death warrant of his best and most trusted advisor. He spends the rest of the day until there's no daylight left to burn, looking for a way out for Daniel. He, he's, he, the picture I have in my mind, he's like a tax lawyer the day before taxes are due. He is looking for every loophole, every case law, every bylaw, any precedent in the Persian Chronicles for the king to change his mind on this. He cannot find a thing. He only had until the end of the day to make good on his threat. So he orders that Daniel be thrown into the lion's den. But before he seals the entrance to the cave, Darius looks at Daniel and he says, may your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. He says, now throw him in. Darius, this pagan king, I can't believe it. He believes in Daniel's God. <laughs> he spends the night fasting. He doesn't sleep at all. At daybreak the next day, Darius rushes back out to the lion's den and like a crazy person starts screaming at the rock over the face of this den to see if Daniel is still alive. To everyone's shock, there's a reply from the darkness. Here it is. O king, live forever. 
my God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth. And they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him and also before you, O king, I have done no harm. So Darius orders his men, release him. They throw a rope down, whatever it is they do to get him out. And they pull him out and they realize he hasn't just survived. He's never been better. (laughs) There's not a scratch on him. Darius, you have to imagine, laughs. He realizes Daniel's had a better night's sleep than I did last night. He's stunned, but no one is more stunned than, his, than Daniel's accusers who are also there. And in the ancient world, a punishment like this was called trial, a trial by ordeal. It basically meant, here was the logic behind it. If we throw you in the lion's den and you die, then you are guilty. If we throw you in the lion's den and you survive, and God saved you, then you were innocent. And now your accusers are subject to the same punishment because they falsely accused you. So Darius rounds up Daniel's accusers and their families, and he throws them into the lion's den, and they are totally devoured. Now, Daniel's just recording, he's not commending this, he's recording it, that Darius is a brutal dictator. This is what dictators do. They don't want heirs coming up, getting revenge on their families. They tie up loose ends. This is what they do. But the story doesn't end there. It ends on Daniel's faith and God's faithfulness and it results in the same praise for God that it has throughout this entire book. Darius, like his predecessor Nebuchadnezzar, he sends a letter to his kingdom saying, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God Enduring forever, his kingdom shall never be destroyed. His dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. Here's my favorite part. Uh, The the most famous city gate in Babylon, if you've never heard this, is called the Ishtar Gate. It's now actually been reconstructed. It's on display in a, in a museum in Berlin. This is something of what it looked like, except it, there was an even larger piece behind it that they can't reconstruct. The Ishtar Gate, into the heart of the city. This was the most beautiful way into the city. This is one of the most powerful symbols of Babylonian power. Along the way to the gate was called the processional way. It looked something like this. This is what the Ishtar Gate would have looked like at the time of Daniel. All along this processional way at eye level were life-sized lions right at your eye as you walked by. Huge, ferocious lions at the beck and call of the king. See, that's that's the picture. That's the symbol. Every time you walk toward Babylon, you see this. The lion, the power of the lions. And see, we know from 2 Chronicles that Cyrus, the Persian, allows the Jews to return home. That's where this story goes next. God's people survive the furnace. They survive the captivity. God saves them from the power of the lions of Babylon. But that's a different story. So there are a lot of ways we could go as we close this chapter on Daniel's life. There's a lot we could say. His life was so rich. What do we say? As we thought about it for this sermon, there was one thing that stood out to us. One thing about how Daniel finishes so well. It's, it's, it's an enduring lesson for us. One that I think Daniel uh, believed wholeheartedly. It was an idea that got him through and I think he believed it with his whole heart. Here it is. Here's what I want you to take away. Prayer is better than control. 
prayer is better than control. Better to be Daniel in the lion's den, filled with faith, than Darius in the palace, imprisoned by fear and guilt. Or the schemers, ruled by hate and selfish ambition. Better to have prayer than control. And I, I know what you're thinking, because I thought it as I typed this out. Give me control any day, right? I want control. These two ideas, okay, prayer and control, which have been at the heart, the control's been at the heart of this whole series, really. They are, they are fundamentally opposed to each other. You cannot pray to control your life. If you've tried, it doesn't work. You pray to release control. So the only one who truly has it. That's what prayer is. It's a release of control. That's why we need it so desperately and it's why we don't like it sometimes. What would you do to avoid getting eaten by lions? Probably a lot. You know the, the would you rather game? You ever played would you rather? Um, if I said to you, would you rather get eaten by lions or what would I need to say on the other side of that or to get you to pick eaten by lions. That's a, that's a short list. <laughs> would you say that stop praying for a month would make that list? And I, I get it, prayer is weird. What other relationship or conversation in your life looks like prayer, praying to God who you can't see or touch? And sometimes if you're like me, you feel like nothing's happening. There's no work getting done and the emails are piling up and the kids are screaming and the dishes aren't going to do themselves and the Twitter feed's calling your name. It's, it, it's, hard to pick face, it's hard to pick prayer over Facebook, let alone death by a lion. And yet for Daniel, it's worth everything. This thing he does every day, three times to Jerusalem. Why? What does he know that I don't? Okay, there's probably more than this. But here's what I want to go. Here's what I want to do next. There's three things I think he knows that I don't about prayer. And the first is this. Prayer builds courage in hostility. It builds courage in the face of evil and hostility. We sometimes <clears throat> think about it this way, okay? We sometimes marvel at Daniel's example and courage and confidence in the face of real physical pain and death. In our minds, we think we would never choose courage in the, in, 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 in the face of the lions. Do you know how he got that courage? It wasn't a miracle. We often think, right, he found the inner strength just in time for that moment, just when he needed it. The resolve, right, to, <clears throat> to face his death. But here's the, that's not what the story teaches us. His character and resolve and courage and even his love for Babylon and the evil men that he served was built on his knees, one prayer at a time, for 65 years. Three times a day. If you do the math, that's 71,000 prayers over his lifetime. See, that's why when Daniel hears the decree that he knows is targeted to him, he knows exactly what to do. He's already been doing it every day. This was his custom. This is no foxhole prayer for Daniel. He's not going and saying, God, help me, I'm in trouble. He's doing what he's done his whole life. That's why Darius has confidence that Daniel's God can save him 
in the lion's den. Why does Darius say that? May your God whom you serve protect you. It's because he knows Daniel is good. It's, because, it's not because he knows Daniel's good at hand-to-hand combat. Daniel's not good. He's an 80-year-old guy at this point. That's not, that's not what he knows about Daniel. There's something about Daniel's courage and his confidence day in and day out that he's already seen. He's seen Daniel with his courage and his faithfulness at work, his excellence, his integrity, and he's seen it in his prayer life. But make, make no mistake, here's the point. Daniel and people like him are not built in a day. He was training for this moment his whole life. That's what prayer does. It puts our confidence in God and not our circumstances every day. Even when we face real evil and real hostility in our world, Daniel's prayer life is so strong, even his enemies knew about it. They say that's how we'll get him. In a world scrambling for control, they thought Daniel's prayer life was his weakness. Did you catch that? We'll catch him at prayer. The irony. This is not Daniel's greatest weakness. It is his greatest strength in exile. And it's the source of his courage. And here's what I want to say. That kind of courage can be ours too. It can Are we hoping it shows up when we need it or are we praying for God's strength now? Because when we have courage, we can do the next thing, which is choose suffering. We can choose suffering over comfort. Prayer chooses suffering over comfort. How easy it would have been for Daniel to choose comfort. The way out of this jam, just don't pray in public. It's so easy. It's right there. It's common sense. But he chooses suffering over comfort. I was recently at a dinner with some folks from Elam Ministries. They do church planting in Iran, and they've got a new guy on their team. He's an American. And uh, we asked him, what's something as you've, you know, got, as you've learned about this ministry and the Iranian church and these people, what, what stands out to you about the Iranian church? Can you guess what he said? He said, prayer. They love prayer prayer. And if there is any church in exile, any people of God in oppression today, it's the Iranian church. What are they known for? Their prayer. How do they survive persecution and suffering and hardship and loss? Pray. They pray. Here's what really blows me away. Daniel, when he hears about the decree, read the text in verse 10. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God. Gave thanks before his God. When he knew suffering was coming on top of all the suffering of his entire life. Think about it. He knew more was coming. He gave thanks and prayer to God. You and I will not choose suffering over comfort until we thank him in the midst of our suffering. Until we choose to see God instead of the lion's. Paul says the same thing to the church in Philippi, in exile there. He says, do not be anxious about anything. Well, how do we do that, Paul? In everything by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God with thanksgiving. That's what he says, with thanksgiving. So often, when we don't pray, we begin to see God in light of our circumstances, don't we? We begin to see God in light of our problems, our questions, and suddenly God is cold and he's distant, and he's uncaring. He doesn't get it. He's not here. 
See, when we, prayer flips that around. We begin to see our circumstances, what's happening in our life in light of who God is, his power, his love, his wisdom, and his goodness. And that changes everything. Kansas City and the United States needs a courageous church. Courageous church. How do we do that? We do that by choosing suffering over comfort, even when it's hard. Last thing we learn about prayer, prayer orients our hearts home. It orients our heart home. So many kingdoms in Daniel's life, so many rulers, so many changes, so many hardships, but one home for Daniel, one home. There's this interesting detail in his story. I don't know if you caught it. He opens his windows to pray, which is how people, he got the reputation for being a man of prayer. He opens his windows to pray toward what? Jerusalem. Why? There's nothing there. The last time Daniel was in Jerusalem, it was completely destroyed. There's no temple. There's no holy place. What is he doing? He's praying home. He's praying home. Now he knows he will never physically go back there. He knows that. He will never again see his earthly city. I don't think he's praying to get back there. I think he's praying for another Jerusalem. I think he's praying for God to fulfill his promises for real home and real rest and real rescue. And this is what prayer does for us too. It reminds us, no matter what is going on, that our exile is deeper than geography and politics and economics. This world, at its best, is not our home. It's not. We are in exile. There's a new Jerusalem coming, and it's worth the wait and the pain and the hard work. It's worth it. And so we pray. We're a praying people, and we pray toward home. Daniel prayed to Jerusalem because he expected an answer from God from there. He expected God to make good on his promises for this world. He did not know how. He did not know when. But in exile, when everything was against him, it was, Daniel was not phased by that because he knew wholeheartedly that God would answer from Jerusalem. And he did. He did. We know what Daniel doesn't. God doesn't just answer Daniel's prayer for home. He enters exile with us. He became one of us. This is the story of Jesus. God in exile with you and me. And he didn't just get thrown into a den of lions and live. He was thrown into a tomb after he died. That's his story. For Jesus, he's come, he's died, he's rose again for our sins. So that no matter what we face, we can know that for certain. He still loves us. He's still fighting for our good and he will get us home. And if this is who our God is, if this is who we pray to, then yes, as weird and hard as prayer can be, it is so much better than control. And just imagine what kind of church we would be, what kind of people we would be if we actually believed that. I wish I could give you another sermon right now on a how-to for prayer, but I just can't. So here's what I want us to do instead. I want us to close our time praying together the prayer Jesus taught us to pray. If you're ever struggling to know what to pray, if you don't know what to say, 
say this prayer. And there's a power in saying it together now. Let's pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.